This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com/longread. How Ukraine's National Dish Became a Symbol of Putin's Invasion by Anya von Bremsen On the 25th of February, 2022, I woke up after a turbulent night checking news updates about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Amid the shock and bouts of crying and doom-scrolling, a seemingly trivial yet intimately unsettling thought entered my mind. I realized that after years of investigating national cuisines and identities for a book I was working on, I no longer knew how to think or talk about borscht, a beet soup that Ukraine and Russia claimed as their own. I grew up in Soviet Moscow eating borscht. Borscht in Cyrillic. No tea at the end, that's a Yiddish edition, at least twice a week. After we emigrated in 1974, it signified for me the complicated, difficult home we had left. Here in Queens, New York, where I live, a big pot made by my mother usually sat in my fridge. But who did have the right to claim it as heritage? That tangled question of cultural ownership I'd been reflecting on for so long had landed on my table with an intensity that suddenly felt viscerally personal. Back in Moscow, in the politically stagnant 1970s, I never regarded borscht as any people's national dish. It was just there, a piece of our shared Soviet reality like the brown winter snow or the buses filled with hangover breath or my scratchy wool school uniform. Our socialist borscht came in different guises. Institutional borscht, with its reek of stale cabbage, was to be endured at kindergartens, hospitals, and workers' canteens across the 11 time zones of our vast union of Soviet socialist republics. Personal borscht, on the other hand, brought out every Soviet mother's and grandmother's sweet ingenuity, although to me, it all tasted kind of the same in the end. My mother was inordinately proud of her hot, super-quick vegetarian version. I still have an image of her in our trim Moscow kitchen, phone tucked under her chin, shredding the carrots, cabbage, and beets on a clunky box grater right into our chipped enamel family pot. It was her recipe, she always insisted, a miracle of shortage economy conjured from a can of tomato paste and some withered root veggies. In the fall, she'd add a tart Antonovka apple, in winter maybe a glob of American ketchup for a piquant, faintly dissident touch. Ukraine became an independent state in 1991, having been an original republic of the USSR, 
and part of the Russian Empire since the late 1700s. The earliest known mention of borscht dates from 1584, in the diary of a German merchant who traveled to Kiev when most of present-day Ukraine belonged to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, well before Ukraine or Russia developed any modern form of national consciousness. The Slavic word borscht most likely referred to hogweed back then, a common plant that was often fermented and used for a sour green potage. The deep red soup we all know must have developed towards the start of the 18th century, as the cultivation of beetroot in Eastern Europe took off. From then on, mentions of borscht in Russian cookbooks became fairly common, although often referencing Molorysia, Little Russia, the imperial term for Ukraine. The Soviets themselves never denied borscht its Ukrainian origins. Parallel to our frugal quotidian beet soup was a dish the propaganda-puffed recipe books, boasting of the diverse cuisines of our Soviet republics, presented as the real Ukrainian borscht. A Baroque meal in a bowl, thick enough to stand a spoon in. It brimmed with all kinds of meats. Meats! Nobody ever saw at a store. Although that borscht supposedly celebrated Ukrainianness. It was a socialist realist fiction, of course, a Soviet folkloric kitsch rebranding of Ukraine as our Scarlet Empire's wholesome breadbasket. A Ukraine scrubbed of the horrors of Stalin's state-induced famines, of the repressions of its language, culture, and any authentic expressions of nationalism. In a political system where the Kremlin socially engineered identities and assigned cultural heritage to the Soviet republics, that borscht was an imperial possession of almighty Moscow as was Ukraine itself, implicitly always a lesser nation than Russia, or perhaps not even a nation at all, as Putin now would have us believe. I'd never thought much about the real Ukrainian borscht until 1989, 15 years after my mom and I immigrated to the U.S., when I wrote my first cookbook, Please to the Table. My book, too, meant to celebrate the culinary diversity of the Soviet republics, an imperialist-tainted project, perhaps, I now think, uneasily, in retrospect. A deeply ironic one, for sure, because Mikhail Gorbachev's creaking imperium was coming apart at the seams as my book went into print, and the Soviet republics kept asserting their independence. Researching borscht in western Ukraine in those twilight days of the USSR, I was shocked to discover versions I never suspected existed. Borscht with white sugar beets and porcini mushrooms, with fermented beet kvass, with smoky dried pears and wild game shot by a hunter we'd met on the road. Returning to New York, I interviewed members of the Ukrainian diaspora here, generous people who fed me fragrant honey cakes and Christmas borscht with tiny dumplings called vushka, and then wrote angry letters when my publisher decided to subtitle the book The Russian Cookbook. My mother's super-quick vegetarian borscht featured in Please to the Table, along with a handful of other borscht recipes. And by some strange twist of fate, almost three decades later, it became a kind of salvation for her. After her darkest, most hopeless days under Donald Trump during the pandemic, she miraculously sprang back to life early in 2021 when she started teaching cooking on Zoom for a wonderful multicultural school called the League of Kitchens. For her class, my mother plumped for her Moscow veggie borscht accompanied by herb and garlic smothered dinner rolls called pampushki. And as soon as her menu promising iconic Russian dishes went up on League of Kitchen's website, an angry email arrived from a Ukrainian-American journalist. To say borscht is a Russian dish is not accurate, 
and could be seen as offensive to a lot of people, said the email. There has been an ongoing fight over Borsch in recent years as part of the backdrop to the continuing very real war between Russia and Ukraine. Indeed, the first real political flare-up over Borsch broke out in 2019, five years after Putin annexed Crimea and started a war in eastern Ukraine. That year, the Russian Federation's Ministry of Foreign Affairs provocatively tweeted, A timeless classic! Hashtag Borsch is one of Russia's most famous and beloved hashtag dishes and a symbol of traditional cuisine. Ukrainian social media responded with outrage and scorn at this weaponizing of soup. As if stealing Crimea wasn't enough, seethed one commentator. You had to go and steal borscht from Ukraine as well. Cultural appropriation, cried Ukrainians interviewed on the subject. The Russians will not take our borscht, vowed Yevgen Klopotenko, a young activist chef in Kiev, as he launched a crusade to have it inscribed into UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. For her part, my passionately anti-Putin, anti-imperialist mother was pained by the Ukrainian journalist's email. Cooking for her was always politically conscious. She garnished her classes with memories of Soviet repressions and the endless humiliating food cues. She told of fleeing the hated Soviet regime at the age of 40 with only me and two suitcases and no right of return. Of how she made her borscht in our bare apartment in alien, faraway Philadelphia but she refused to assign a single identity to a dish that she, along with people across multiple borders, have been cooking for generations, have internalized as their own. There are many types of borscht, she would insist, grating her carrots and beetroots, Russian, Polish, Lithuanian, Moldovan, Karelian, diaspora Jewish, and yes, yes, Ukrainian. Across the giant span of the USSR, she would further insist, Borscht was a comfort food that connected people who shared not just the dishes, but also the tragedies of Soviet fate. Stalin's gulags, for instance, which didn't spare a single group or ethnicity. Anyway, this was her, Larissa's, recipe, full of her personal touches, resonant with so many memories. I wasn't about to argue with my mother about whose dish it really was. My years of work on this issue had left me wary of territory where gastronomy was entangled with nation branding and profit. I was skeptical of the overused concept of cultural appropriation. I agreed with philosopher Kwame Anthony Apia that it casts cultural practices as something like corporate intellectual property. Whereas in reality, as he put it, all cultural practices and objects are mobile. They like to spread, and almost all are themselves creations of intermixture. Then, the 24th of February, 2022 happened. That night, my mother, my partner Barry and I, sat in silence, gripped by grief, rage, despair, and utter disbelief, watching live CNN footage of Putin launching his full-scale invasion. There were air raid sirens blaring in Kiev that night, missile strikes, explosions rocking several other major Ukrainian cities. My mother was ashen-faced. She barely spoke but I'm pretty sure she was flashing back to the sunny day of the 22nd of June, 1941, when she was seven and the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union was unleashed. Over the following weeks, the news brought a surreal split screen of two countries collapsing in different ways. Ukraine all smoke, haze, and wreckage from Putin's missiles and artillery. 
Russia ominously freezing itself back to the Cold War USSR of my childhood. Extreme censorship. Toxic state-sponsored patriotism. As if one needed any further reminder that allegiances and identities can shift overnight, Soviet emigres from our circles who considered themselves culturally Jewish-Russian-American started remembering all the family members they had in Ukraine. As did we. My mom's dad was from Dnipropetrovsk, now Dnipro. Her entire maternal clan was from Odessa, the city of our sunburned summer vacations. Now in that city where she herself was born and lived very briefly, acquaintances who used to grimace at Ukrainian nationalism switched their social media feeds to Ukrainian and railed against Moscow's brutality. Meanwhile, close friends of ours here, worldly people born in Soviet Ukraine, were posting diatribes savaging Great Russian Culture on Facebook. Some gloated over images of dead Russian soldiers, just boys, splayed in the snow. It was shocking to see, but deep down I shared their naked rage. Every Russian, including myself, seemed to be somehow complicit. I felt guilty for thinking in the imperialist language of Putin's aggression, for the volumes of Pushkin and Tolstoy on my bookshelves, and yes, for my previous thoughts about borscht. If I started my National Dish Project comfortable with my own cosmopolitanism, I felt bereft now, a gaping emptiness where my mental happy places should be. In the U.S., years of Trumpism were poisoning the country that opened its doors to my mom and myself back in 1974. My ancestral homeland? A genocidal terrorist state. My younger brother and my father had died in Moscow the previous year and now I couldn't imagine ever returning to visit their graves. It's an evergreen cliché that in times of crisis, the foods we grew up with provide a comforting sense of home and security, reconnect us to who we are, where we come from. But just thinking of borscht brought more heartache. Who owns borscht? The question hung in the air, accusatory. The soup of my childhood had become a symbol of Putin's assault on Ukrainian land, culture, and heritage, of his drive to plunder and obliterate Ukraine. By April, Russia's atrocities in Bucha were being uncovered, millions of Ukrainians had become refugees, and entire towns and cities lay in ruins. Meanwhile, Russian's foreign ministry spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, a blonde-haired, ferocious Putinist, delivered a bizarre tirade about borscht. It had to belong to just one people, just one nationality, she ranted after Ukrainians insisted that borscht was their national dish. But for it to be shared? No, they don't want to compromise. This is exactly what we are talking about. Xenophobia, Nazism, extremism in all forms. In the service of an unprovoked invasion, she was co-opting the time-honored, benevolent notion that food should be shared. By then, my mother, who had been so traumatized by the early days of the war, had found in her borscht an emotional anchor and a new political meaning. Together with a League of Kitchens, she was using her Zoom classes to raise money for Ukraine, to speak out in our local media, even on Japanese television, against Putin's horror show. The struggle transformed her. At 88, she became a modest, heartfelt part of the global Stand with Ukraine movement, where borscht was no longer just soup, but a fundraising force and a solidarity symbol. Anyone who cooks borscht today gets closer to us, declared Klopotenko, the young Kiev chef. 
In London, my friend Olya Hercules, a brilliant Ukrainian food writer turned crusader, started the Cook for Ukraine drive with her Russian emigre colleague Elisa Timoshkina, raising more than two million pounds and boosting the profiles of Ukrainian culture and food. In New York, iconic East Village restaurant Veselka became an activism hub, with all its borscht profits going to Ukrainian charities. Soon, the social media of my food friends all over the world was a tide of blue-yellow flags of Vareniki dumplings and stuffed cabbage, and the same borscht and pampushki my mom made for her class. My mother now spoke about borscht with a newfound authority and moral clarity. It didn't matter who exactly invented the soup, she insisted. What was crucial was how borscht figured in a national narrative. And for Ukrainians under attack, it was a powerful symbol of unity. Borscht, she told one radio interviewer, stands for home, generosity, the richness of land, and family ties. And all these things are now being taken away from Ukrainians. This was pretty much UNESCO's justification for an unprecedented emergency move to fast-track the cultural heritage application that had been submitted back in 2019. On the 1st of July, 2022, day 128 of the invasion, as Russian missiles killed more than 20 people near Odessa, UNESCO declared the culture of Ukrainian borscht an intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent safeguarding. Victory in the war for borscht is ours, Ukraine's cultural minister Alexander Tkachenko posted on Telegram. Remember and be sure, we will win this war like we did the war for borscht. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread.com 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audio long read. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Late that summer, six months into Russia's assault, I called Aurora Ogorodnik, a food researcher in Lviv, who is writing a book about borscht with anthropologist Mariana Dushar. I wanted to ask for her thoughts on the dish as a Ukrainian national symbol, a role supercharged by Putin's invasion. But borscht has long been symbolically important for us, Aurora said. We cook it for baptisms, weddings, and funerals. We serve it in public communal pots during political protests. We even prepare it in dried form as rations for our soldiers since 2014. She paused, then added simply, It's who we are, our DNA, red like our blood. And now Ukrainians eat it when they return to their ruined cities and villages. I've met Aurora in the sunny before era at an international food conference. Now, she said, she was mostly at home in Lviv in western Ukraine, well away from the major fighting in the country's south and east, yet always under threat of a missile strike. Daily life goes on here, she told me, sounding eerily calm, but with the ever-present backdrop of a sudden air raid, the realization that at any moment you too can be killed. I wondered if perhaps now wasn't the right moment to talk about soup while civilians were being slaughtered and cities destroyed. No, now is the moment, Aurora said, to finally banish those Russian-Soviet colonialist optics. Because it was fine having us as funny, folksy Ukrainians with our borscht and our salo, lard, when we were part of the USSR, which Russia controlled. But once we began to assert our independence, They decided to remind us, no, borscht doesn't belong to you, actually. So borscht is also an emblem of separation for us, she said. A red line where we cut them off and say, enough to colonialism. There were a thousand more things I planned to ask Aurora, but instead, I suddenly found myself profusely apologizing. Apologizing for narcissistically going on about the guilt I was feeling, my own rage at the Russians, my loss of identity, my sheepishness for not yet learning Ukrainian, and having to speak Russian to her. With quiet authority, Aurora offered me a way forward. I understand your rage. I share it, Anya. And when you're far away, it's easy to get engulfed by despair. But all you need is a moment of reflection. Just one then stop dwelling on hatred and guilt. Spread love and compassion through your cooking and writing. And really, she added, how is any of this your personal fault? At the end, I asked Aurora if she believed Russians and Ukrainians would ever eat borscht together again. There was a long silence. Finally, she replied, not until the Ukrainians who win this war and the Russians who lose it are long gone. So where, then, was my guilt in all this? Hanging up after speaking to Aurora, I thought again of a poem, the savagely offensive verse lamenting Ukraine's independence by the poet Joseph Brodsky, exiled Jewish-Russian-Soviet dissident and Nobel laureate. The one where he promises that on their deathbeds, Ukrainians will forsake the bullshit 
of their national 19th century poet Taras Shevchenko for Pushkin. The one where he wants to spit in Ukraine's great river, the Dnieper. Brodsky wrote this in 1992, when he was living in the U.S. and embittered by Ukraine splitting away from Russia. He never published it, though he read it in public, just twice. Recently, it had been resurfacing in conversations about Russian imperialist arrogance. I think I need to decolonize Borscht for myself, I texted Aurora, to stop thinking of owning it because of my Soviet-Russian personal history. Aurora texted some kind words back in Ukrainian. The tension I felt during our conversation lifted a little. On a stormy evening in August, two old friends arrived at my apartment in Queens with an armful of sumptuous marigolds. Andre explained their Ukrainian name. Chornobriutsi, dark-browed, meaning beautiful. On the drive over, his wife Toma said, they perfumed our car with the scent of Ukrainian summer. Later, I learned that Ukrainians plant marigolds by their houses to ward off the evil eye and misfortune. Toma and Andre are from Kiev and live in New Jersey, and we hadn't seen them for months. Since the invasion, Andre, a documentary filmmaker whose works include an account of Ukraine's Orange Revolution of 2004, had been posting on Facebook with such raw anti-Russian passion I wasn't sure if they'd want to see me again. In one post, he talked about how his hatred, at first an acute disease with fever, curses, and wishes for a painful death to you-know-who, had become a chronic condition, always with me, day, morning, evening, and of course, in my dreams. Deeply worried about them, sheepishly I had emailed my sympathies and repeatedly suggested getting together. Andre would thank me for reaching out and leave it at that. But now they were here, looking festive with their Ukrainian flowers and blue-yellow Ukrainian solidarity bracelets. We were overjoyed to see them. I had thought long and hard about what borscht I would serve for this occasion, brought about by such wrenching circumstances. To decolonize borscht, to make it truly Ukrainian, I rejected all the recipes I knew as a Soviet and post-Soviet Russian. For days, I researched the soup in Ukrainian, struggling with Google's translations at first, then eventually easing into this language once so close to mine. What I found was a trove of regional recipes, recipes that now read like an atlas of violence. Here was borscht, prunes obligatory, from Vinitsa, the west-central city with a long Jewish history, where on a sunny July day, Russian rockets killed 23 civilians going about their daily routines. There was a borscht based on dried fish from Mykolaiv, an industrial port city bombarded by Russians for months on end. There was a Tatar borscht with lamb, quince, and corn from Crimea. I discovered borscht aphorisms and cartoons, borscht proverbs and jokes, borscht poems newly composed in the noise of this war. Personal borscht recipes triumphantly named for places where Ukrainians repelled Russian aggressors. Sifting through all these, I would think of something Mariana, Aurora's co-author, told me. Borscht isn't so much a recipe as a national idea, she said. An idea that all Ukrainians carry inside them. Borscht develops and changes, and it changes us in the process. In my own way, I felt that borscht was changing me, too. 
Toma and Andre's eyes grew wide at my opening dish. A chilled borscht, for which I'd fermented the beet kvass myself, as it was done centuries ago, then added sour cherries and rhubarb for a classic fruity tart flavor. In Kiev, said Toma, we'd use fresh gooseberries for that sour effect. Just six months ago, we were the same people, I reflected sadly, as my mother passed around her chopped liver, herring pate, and a garlicky eggplant dip. Jewish appetizers iconic to her native Odessa. We were all former Soviets turned emigres, Russian speakers of mixed ethnic backgrounds, who'd read Pushkin, had the same cultural compass. And now the invasion has divided us, Andrei continued my thought, his voice going quiet, into those living in a daily personal hell and the compassionate bystanders, who'll never truly understand our trauma. Toma and Andre had spent the past months waking up and going to bed, checking the news and updates from their families in Kiev. Toma has two sisters back home. Andre's sister had suffered such severe depression and panic attacks, she was in Germany receiving treatment. It helped to get a break from the air raids, said Andre, but she can't wait to get back to her kids and grandkids. I brought out my second borscht to the table my mother had decorated with sunflowers and a mini Ukrainian flag. It's shocking pink with blended-in sour cream, dusky with broth infused with smoked pork. It has no potatoes or cabbage and is meant to be sipped from cups at weddings. Nobody at the table had tasted anything like it. The recipe had been taught me by Maria, a recent refugee from Ivano-Frankivsk in the west of the country. It will de-russify you, Maria promised, only half-joking. Inevitably, the conversation turned back to our changed identities. Andre, of Jewish-Polish-Ukrainian background, just like Borsch, I noted, went to a Ukrainian school but now deeply regrets not doing a better job reading Ukrainian literature in its original language. Toma was born in Dresden, ex-German Democratic Republic, but had lived in Kiev since childhood. Though her entire family is ethnically Russian, her sister back home can't bear the sound of Russian anymore, can't look at Russians. As they talked, I thought of the dream I'd been having for weeks, one where I sit in my childhood Moscow apartment, drinking sugary tea with my departed father and brother, from which I'd wake up feeling homeless, sundered from my past. I wanted to tell them about it, but now Toma was proposing a toast. Taborsh, she offered. It's the color of pomegranate, bright as a Ukrainian folk song. To eating it often with people we love, my mother put in. Andre raised his shot glass of Polish vodka. Borscht is a generous dish, he declared. A Ukrainian dish. Even if other people might claim it. I say, leave it to Ukrainians, please. And after they win this war, they'll invite the rest of the world to the table. But not members of the Russian Federation, Toma added tartly. And we drank. Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was How Ukraine's National Dish Became a Symbol of Putin's Invasion by Anya von Bremsen, read by Olga Koch and produced by Nikola Alexandru. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. This is an edited extract from National Dish by Anya von Bremsen, published by Penguin Press US on the 20th of June. 
It will be published by Pushkin Press in the UK in September. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.